What's up, Overcomers? Welcome to another episode of the Overcoming You podcast. I am your host, Josh Canuti. If you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button, give us a rating, write us a review, follow us on Instagram, Overcoming You, the letter U, or TikTok, Overcoming You, the letter U, and follow us and see what we're up to. We'd love to hear your feedback and love to uh, get you part of, part of the community and some fellow Overcomers. This episode is brought to you by Onnit. Onnit is a health and fitness juggernaut dedicated to delivering total human optimization to its vast customer base of athletes, thinkers, fitness gurus, and entrepreneurs. Through a wide array of products and supplements, Onnit combines cutting-edge science, earth-grown nutrients, and time-tested strategies to help people reach peak performance. Whether you are climbing mountains or biking down them, building businesses or closing sales, chasing PRs in the weight room or running a marathon, Onnit is the brand you want in your back pocket. As one of the fastest growing health and fitness companies in the world, Onnit refuses to bring anything but the very best to market, whether it be energy bars, protein shakes, creatine, or their flagship products, Alpha Brain and Shroom Tech. Onnit's diverse line of products and supplements are backed by science and research. You can save up to 10% off by visiting onnit.com slash O-C-Y. That's onnit.com slash O-C-Y, O-N-N-I-T.com slash O-C-Y. My guest today is Mr. Dave Hollis. Dave Hollis has had quite, quite the life of building and overcoming, building and overcoming. I mean, this man was such a joy to talk to. He's got a new book coming out titled Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. I mean, this man has done so many things and has overcome so many different obstacles. I mean, he was the head of distribution for Disney. He's worked with Beyonce and Destiny's Child and basically just had it all. I mean, literally climbed the corporate ladder, was was the man, was on stage giving presentations. People were, he had a massive team at Disney but he just wasn't fulfilled and he did something that I give him such props to or props for and something that we talked about and that is living his high profile high powered super um, big salary at Disney and then jumping into the entrepreneur world where he is now the CEO of the Hollis group you might know his wife Rachel Hollis or at least my wife is uh, definitely in love with her Rachel Hollis has been coined the female Tony Robbins, and the Hollis Company is a company that just exists to help people build better lives, and he's a joy to talk to. He has a ton of life experiences. We talk about marriage. We talk about overcoming. We talk, talk about making the jump, and like I said, he was just a joy to talk to, super down to earth, and I just really appreciate the conversation, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it, so please welcome my friend, Mr. Dave Hollis. Worked in entertainment for the better part of 20 years, 20 plus years. Uh, started at 20th Century Fox, launched that 70s show. I was a tour manager for Destiny's Child during the first album that they launched, uh, and then had a 17 year run at the Walt Disney Company. And I, with that experience and resume, still had my own doubts about the transferability of the experiences that I had in that corporate environment with a startup skunk works kind of operation. And it was 
okay to actually have those feelings because there were a whole bunch of things that didn't actually perfectly translate. Mr. Dave Hollis, welcome to the Overcoming You podcast. I appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy man. Thanks for doing this. Oh, man, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So we have actually a couple things in common. We actually have a very similar name, or should I say rather a uh, suffix or moniker, as in you are Rachel's husband and I am Jeanette's husband. Seems like everyone <laughs> knows us like that, so it's funny. It works that way. I'm proud of that. Hopefully you are too. It's, a, it's an interesting thing being married to humans that are prolific in producing that you happen to be partners and best friends with, but it's also been an awesome blessing to do this work with her, so... I'm here for it. I always say um, I always look a lot better when I stand next to her. She's a uh, nine without makeup. I'm a six at best with money, and uh, <laughs> but uh, together we make a good match. So I'm really excited to talk to you. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you, I wanted to see you made a big jump, and that's the other thing that we have in common. You made a big jump from a corporate standpoint to what you currently do now. So I wanted to see, can you give the listeners a little bit about your background, your corporate job, because it was a pretty big deal. It was a big jump. I, uh, I worked in entertainment for the better part of 20 years, 20 plus years. Uh, started at 20th Century Fox, had roles in research and in publicity, worked on shows like The X-Files and uh, launched that 70s show. Went into managing human beings, uh, as it were, at a talent agency. Had a client list that had Ricky Lake and Melissa Joan Hart on it. Went and did some grassroots marketing stuff for Merv Griffin, where among other things, I was a tour manager for Destiny's Child during the first album that they launched, uh, and then had a 17-year run at the Walt Disney Company, where I spent my entire time there inside the studio business. The last seven of the years that I was there, I was the head of sales for the theatrical film studio, and in selling movies to movie theaters, got to work on the Pixar, Marvel, Lucas, Disney product in making sure that our films were put into theaters all around the world. It was fantastic, uh, just as careers go, until it wasn't as uh, fantastic and that it wasn't as challenging a job selling Star Wars and Avengers to movie theaters as uh, you might hope that it would be. And in the absence of it feeling as challenging... I went on this interesting existential search for why the heck I was on this planet, why I'd been given gifts and tools that I wasn't necessarily in a position to have to fully utilize in the middle of crossing that bridge between 30 and 40. And in that discovery window, my wife started really prolifically creating things. She'd been scaling a business for 15 years, but wrote a big book. And we decided, you know what, let's go do this work together. Let's see if we can't, in partnership, take the strengths that I might bring to the business as a pragmatic, practical operator, pair the strengths that I have with you, the dreamer, visionary creator, and see if that combo platter might be able to better serve this audience and bring the tools that we're trying to create to the hands of more people. And the last two years have, have been just that. It's been, it's been amazing and just radically, radically different than what I was up to and doing before. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you is that, so we have a, that was the other thing we have in common. We both were in this corporate job, you know, really killing it and made the jump. And I say this with love and kindness. And I say this just coming from a personal standpoint, 
how did you tame your ego as far as inside of your relationship? Because I'll just speak from my perspective and maybe you've felt the same way. I'm not sure at times is that, you know, when Jeanette and I first met, you know, I was killing it. I was doing, I was all that in a bag of chips. And then I made the jump to buy this $10 million corporation that unfortunately didn't pan out the way I wanted it to. And her business shot up like crazy, similar to your wife's. And then all of a sudden I became kind of second fiddle and that really messed with my ego a little bit. And so how did you tame your ego? How did you Randall wrangle that beast because sometimes especially with males it can be it can be a daunting task it can be real something that that eats at you yeah well it took a lot of work and a lot of time you know like I was in a place for the entirety of our relationship as the primary breadwinner where the career that I'd built at the Walt Disney Company or the status title security that came from that existence was uh, ingrained in who I was and my identity, you know, in a lot of ways was attached to the title on a business card or the amount of money that was coming in a paycheck. And the decision to come do this work, especially as I was stepping away from something that had status associated with who I was in that role, for the opportunity to help support the tools that she was creating. Now, we made this decision, I will say, we made the decision before Girl, Wash Your Face came out, but moved just after it did. That was two books ago for her, but since that book came out, it's combined, she sold a little more than four million books. That's a lot of books, had a bunch of conferences, right? The, the way that the years unfolded, the two years that we've been working together have unfolded, it has absolutely been a trigger and test for me in the like difference in how I used to know myself in relation to her as a primary breadwinner, as a person who had this job, and now her as uh, you know the person who was certainly, as it pertains to delivering value for our family, she had a year in you know 2018 and 19 that was unbelievably different in how uh, her work was affording our family an opportunity or our, our our business an opportunity to grow, and that was threatening to me. It was it was uh, you know jarring in some ways. I wrote a chapter about it in my book. The the lie that I was believing in that season was if she doesn't want me, she will not need me. I'm sorry, other way around. If if she doesn't need me, uh, will she still want me? Would that, you know that she won't still want me? And and I, and in some crazy way, I'd contorted that her love in some ways was a conditional contingent on my ability to provide. And in the absence of her needing my provision, my insecurities flared in a way that said, okay, if she doesn't need me, is she still going to want me? You know, like she doesn't have a reason necessarily outside of just me being who I am. And of course, that's, it's, it was ridiculous. It was crazy. It was something that was, you know, a, a seventh grade thing that was now manifesting itself at 40. But um, it took time. And to be honest, I have been the beneficiary of so much learning that's come sitting on the couch of a therapist, having a community of friends that have been able to come around and in instances where the same thing has happened, hey, I am a man who's supporting a strong woman who's building something that's meaningful and changes the way that she's earning money relative to me as the, the man in the relationship and have compl just completely normalized the you know taboos or the societal stuff that I may have applied to it. Ego, just generally speaking, because you brought up ego, us working together, you know, like separate from a little bit of the role shifting, 
it's been two of the very, very best years of our entire marriage and two of the very hardest years of our entire marriage because this decision to spend as much time as we do, the decision to work together in a way that because of my being the operator, her being the visionary, there's just some natural friction that inevitably is supposed to come up in those roles. But when you're also married to best friends with and interested in still making out with this person, man, it, it's hard. And it's been hard. It's less hard today than it was when we started. But we are in a perpetual state of working on maintaining the exceptional relationship we say we want while we still lead this team together and work together every single day. Yeah, that was one thing that the realization that I had or the catalyst to me kind of getting better with that dynamic shift that you and I both went through is that you're not in competition with your wife. And that was a real big thing because I always had to be the tallest, the strongest, the the make the most money. I had to always be the bravado. I had to always do that. And it's just all ego. And once you get, once you do the therapy or go through the talks or whatever you do and start to harness or at least tame that beast of an ego, it just seems to be so much better because all you want is, is nothing but the best for them. And there's no competition there. That was a real big, yeah. big learning for me. Well, what it took for me too was in a world where I'd built in the career that I had in entertainment, something that I thought I, I got to the destination I thought I was shooting for and didn't feel the things I thought I would in part because of the disconnectedness of the kind of work that it was taking in this environment where I was surrounded by the greatest team, the greatest leadership, the best brands, everything else. But also I was in that season of like, why am I on this planet? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Looking for an opportunity to have impact on a scale that was a little bit different than, uh, you know, doing well by others or earning, uh, you know, more money. I wanted to try out effect and, and impact people. And so when it really was now, okay, you want to you want to do this work, you want to actually use these these gifts that you've been given to gift other people the opportunity to get out of their own way, to reach for the better version of their own life. Well, what's the vessel for actually affecting the most people? And my wife as that vessel meant that my work in helping support her interest in helping other people was me actually achieving this thing that I had been in pursuit of but couldn't find in a career that I built and thought I needed but needed to inevitably leave to ultimately find that real that real meaning in, in, in fulfillment in my life. Kind of going back to the jump that we talked about from your big, massive corporate job, Disney, one of the biggest companies in the world, um, you're the face of you know this huge team that you have, you make the jump, and I think this kind of ties into the tattoo you have on your arm. What do you say to people? Because when everyone looks at you and looks at you at that job, go, why in the world would you leave that? You had you had everything. You had status. You had money. You had the nice cars. You had all that type of stuff. Why in the world would you leave? I know you just kind of alluded to it there, but that's a very difficult jump to make. So for yeah. someone, and I was in the same position, not to your level in any stretch of the imagination, but- what would you say to somebody that's sitting there and going, hey, I have everything I want monetarily. I have everything from the outside, but there's something inside of me that I want to jump, but I'm just scared of that jump because there has to have been a little level of of timidness for you to do that. So what would you yeah. say to some of those people sitting in, those, in that office right now? Well, a couple things. I mean, I found myself, because of not being in a posture for growth, 
right? And again, I want to I want to be clear. I was in a scenario where I had become comfortable with the work that was being asked of me in part because of the abundance of resources that made the job easy to get straight A grades without having to study for tests. And as much as getting straight A grades, getting the bonuses, having the title, being a part of the academy, whatever, like any of the things that this job may have come with are things that, man, from the outside, make it part of the dream job. And from what I believed five years earlier were the things that would make me happy, not being in a place where I was really, truly in a, in a position to fail. Not like, you know, I, there were, of course, things I could have made mistakes with here, there, whatever, but with Marvel, Pixar, Lucas, Disney, the strength of the team, strength of the leadership, power of the brands, there was not a real true chance for me to fail period. And in the absence of being in a spot where I could fail, I was not growing. And so that, that connection that, I've, that I realized after having really descended into a ditch, a stuck of my own creation, this connection between fulfillment and growth is one of the most powerful in the world. And I, because I'd been stuck in this place of kind of waiting on other people to create that opportunity for growth, begrudging a little bit that I wasn't being given some different opportunity to, to feel that thing that I felt at the beginning of my assignment when I was drinking out of a fire hydrant. I was, I was, I was, just, I was just not the greatest version of myself. And the thing that changed for me was actually the leverage of picturing what might happen if I weren't to take the kind of massive action to totally change the trajectory of my life for the opportunity to show up as the husband I'd hope to be, as the father my kids deserve, as the person I want to be proud of when I'm falling asleep at night. And it was in that, oh man, I need to take action, that yep, I got this tattoo that you refer to on my arm, a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are built for. As a reminder, uh, you know, one, as a, as, a, as a commitment to my wife, hey, I want to be this person that acknowledges that I have a responsibility to push myself outside of my comfort zone so that I can be in a state of growing, not dying. As a reminder for my children, I got four kids, which is like a thousand kids. Four kids every single day, I want them to remember that growth happens outside of their comfort and leaving that dock, leaving that harbor of security is the only way that they're going to be able to be in a, in a state where they can grow and in that growth state ex actually have some kind of fulfillment happen in their life. But I got it mostly as a reminder for myself because the decision to do it, as you say, was one that I questioned and worried about what other people would think of me making a choice that made sense to me but not them for the entirety of making that choice and this reminder that I was built for this, I was built for these choppy waters to choose to do things that intentionally push me outside of my comfort zone is something I have to remind myself of all the time because I thought the decision to leave was the hard choice. And as much as it was in fact a hard choice, the two years of time since I made that choice have been the most difficult and fulfilling years ever because in that I call it like this season of being unmoored right like I made this decision I took the rope off the dock I'm now out in the water and it is disorienting and then we get past the jetty and it's jarring to my identity then I get out in the choppy waters and it's really punching on all of the coping mechanisms that I might have previously leaned on or right and the the like the decision that you are built for this you know the, the decision that you're built for the water that you are pursuing intentionally 
is one that you'll have to just get up and make every single day because it's not like it just gets easy. It's that you have to inevitably create the habit loops and the discipline, the, 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 the kind of things that ultimately help you keep your balance when the boat starts tipping. So I can already hear the keyboards typing away and everything and going, oh, yeah, Dave, it's real easy for you to do that. You're the big, big executive. You have money. It's easy to quit a job when you have money. It's easy to start your passion when you have money. What do you say to those folks? Because I think you and I both know that's a limited belief, but it is a real factor. You got to eat. You got to pay your rent. You got to do all that type of stuff. So what would you say to those folks? Yeah, you can't do crazy things that compromise your ability to provide for your family. So start there. If you're at a place where you can't make rent, where you're at a place where you haven't saved a little bit of money to take a chance on yourself and the belief in what you can do outside of that safe harbor, then hold hold on to the fact that you need a little more time before you're ready. But if you're holding on to some belief that a certain amount of money is going to be the thing that actually is satisfying, or if in any way your motivation today because of not having money is one that you believe, if you think that money is going to be the thing that sustains you on the days when it gets hard, I, am, I just am 100% positive and can guarantee that it is not that thing. You have to stay connected to the want for being fulfilled, the want for creating a legacy that matters, the want for being the example you'd hope for your kids to see. And that can happen in, in, in any environment so long as you are in a position where you can grow. And, and I, to me, even if you got to pay bills, you can literally pay bills doing any job. So it better be a job that is going to push you outside of something that you currently are super comfortable with for the opportunity to prepare you for what's next. Every time in the midst of my career, up till that last few years where I felt like I'd stopped growing, I was in a perpetual state of growth. I, I had a 17-year career at Disney. The first 10 years, I had 10 jobs. Every time I stepped into a new job, it was choppy water, fire hydrant, drinking kind of stuff that was exhilarating and difficult, that was pushing me outside of my comfort zone and exactly what I needed. And so the idea that like, oh, easy for you, I took my, my second opportunity at Disney when I was a coordinator eating top ramen in an apartment that I could barely afford. So, right, you can, you can still take a step into something that's uncomfortable. You can still take a step into something that tests what you believe you're currently capable of to rewrite what you now know you can do for having done something you didn't think you could, it, no matter what level you're at. You just have to adopt the mindset that, it, that if you don't, that if you just stay with something that you're, that's safe or that you know, that as much as money may be a thing that you can achieve or status may be a thing that you can achieve in the short term, that in the long run, you will reach a point where you're wondering, why am I not happy? Why am I not fulfilled? And the answer may in fact lie in that you have not found something that is forcing you into a growth posture that would actually deliver you the fulfillment you want. You know, kind of switching gears now. Now you go around the country, you're selling out arenas, you're talking to a lot of people, so you have a different perspective than I, but I've been dealing with this thought that human beings, myself included, we um, we want a life void of failure, a void of discomfort. And it's something really interesting. I was reading a piece on Sigmund Freud when he came over to the U.S. There was a bunch of reporters going, Mr. Freud, Mr. Freud, Mr. Freud, you know, what are you looking to do over there? And he goes, I want to know the difference between discomfort and true pathology, meaning Life is hard. We are going to have discomfort. We are going to have stuff that just sucks. And then there's actual real misery, real pathology. And, and I always equate it to 
um, physical fitness, I love the fact that physical fitness, it's not even a question. No matter what, you have to do some sort of physical fitness if you want to have the best life, the healthiest life, period, end of, end of story. Nobody questions that. And now it's gotten to the point where, hey, if you haven't worked out for a while, you'll go to the gym and you know, for a matter of fact, that you will be sore. And it's gotten to the point now where it's almost a badge of honor. And I catch myself doing this all the time because I'm super into physical fitness. And someone said, oh, my God, I'm so sore. I can barely sit down to go to the bathroom. I high five. I'm like, yeah, you freaking killed it. But it's a badge of honor. And I think I want to get all of us, myself included, into this portion of life where when we have failures, when we have discomfort in life, we use that as a badge of honor, not like, oh, my God, my life's going terrible. Would you? What are your thoughts seeing all of these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people that you you affect on the last couple of years? Do you see that being a common theme throughout people's life? Like they just don't want any failure. They don't want any discomfort. Do you see that or am I? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And the thing is, people have a fear of failure that is, you know, from my experience, more a fear of being seen failing, right? Like it's more ego-driven worry of what other people might think of witnessing them try and not be perfect the first time. And the gift, if there is one in this, is people are not watching. And if they are, they do not actually care about you. And that is so hard for our ego or our identity or our self-worth or whatever it might be to accept that possibility that not every single person in the universe is paying attention to the things we're doing. But truly, people are thinking about themselves first because not that the, because they're monsters or that they're bad in any way, because they're human, just like you are, just like I think about myself first and you think about yourself first, so do every other person that's you know out there. Uh, the thing that I've had to do in helping reframe the way people think about it, one, is to help them see in every person they admire, literally every person they admire, in every company they admire, literally every company they admire, that they are standing on top of the failures that they continued to learn from and not buried beneath them. And so the idea that you could potentially achieve the levels of success of the people you admire most or build a company, the likes of which you admire the most, without failure is a ridiculous illusion. It's an impossibility. So if you want to be like the people you admire or if you aspire to have the kind of life that they have, uh, you're going to have to accept that failure is a thing that is for you, not against you, because failure is just providing data. It is giving you real-time feedback on the either the areas that you need to improve in. Thank you for that gift. I need to get better at these things. Here are a set of tools I could apply to actually become better. Or they're, they're giving you customer feedback. Oh, the customer didn't like this piece of the design, didn't like this piece of the way that we deliver, didn't like this part of the experience. What could we do to, in the blessing of receiving their feedback from our failure, do to make this experience, this product, this service, ourselves better for the future. If you are never in a place where you can fail, where you, you've just protected yourself from the possibility of failure, you're not doing anything that actually matters. You're not creating something that'll have the kind of impact you hope. You will not actually make the kind of difference that you'd hope to, because if you're not in a place where you can fail, it's not pushing, it's not pushing yourself out there. It's just not, it, you, ha you have to do it. So we've had, you know, we, we, the culture that we're trying to create inside the company, the, the kind of conversations that we're having as a couple have always had to come back to 
first appreciating that the company that we're building five years from now is so that the the vision that we have, the design that we have for how we're going to get there is so much more evolved than the set of skills that exist in this room today that none of us as leaders inside of this company will be sitting at the leadership table five years from now unless we are willing to humble ourselves to the reality that we have to grow into those leaders that we'll need then because the job's so much bigger. And the only way that we'll grow into being the leaders that'll sit at that table five years from now is by opening ourselves up to the reality that we have to fail our way and learn through those failures to acquire the kind of skills that we'll need to get there. So that, that's the first thing. And the second is just normalizing failure so much in the way that we talk about it so that we don't in some weird, like there's a human nature instinct to revisionist history, the things that didn't work out so well because it makes our our ego or our pride or the, the possibility for shame or embarrassment reduced in us telling a version of the events that manipulates the facts in a way that doesn't expose us for the reality of what actually happened. And in that revisionist history version of events, we dilute the possibility for all of the learning that would have come if we'd have just been honest in the mistakes that we made and the kind of tools or remedies to get better from them. Yeah. Um, you said two really cool things there. One, um, you know, what other people think about you, nobody cares. I love Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, quote. Um, I'm probably going to butcher it. It goes something like, you will care little about what other people think about you when you realize how seldom they do. Yeah. It's so real. It, yeah. Because everybody, if you think about yourself, you're thinking about yourself all the time. You're thinking about what do they think about me, all that type of stuff. And the other thing, and that kind of brings us to your book, the one thing that I like that you said there is that you know that there's going to be hurdles along the way. You know it ahead of time. And so if you can understand that, hey, when I go to the gym, I know I'm going to be sore, you can figure out how am I going to react to that. And so I like, you know, your book is uh, soon to come out, Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. And from what I know and what I've seen and the little tidbits that I've uh, watched is that you have these little, hey, when you try to grow or when you step out of your comfort zone, you're going to face these possible things. And this is what comes up. So can you walk through or maybe give us a couple things in the book? Yeah. So the book for me was an attempt as a lifelong skeptic who frankly would have rejected the idea of reading a book like this or any of the tools that exist to better yourself personally. Uh, as a person who had a fixed mindset for most of my life, really resistant to putting myself in positions where I could fail, wanting to manicure the optics of everything being great, and someone who, frankly, has struggled with motivation. I, I uh, As much as I am married to someone who has just the greatest motivation engine in her being, am not someone who wakes up in the morning ready to jump out of bed, wanted to talk about the things that had been in my way, particularly as I found myself after a successful first half of a professional life stuck in a rut of my own creation and how in identifying these, as it turns out, 20 lies that I believed, how in identifying the truth that made those lies unbelievable, I was able to now get out of my own way. And if there's any relatability in, in those lies being things that you might believe, maybe help you get out of your own way too. So, you know, the, one of the first chapters is that my work is who I am. Uh, you know, the earlier conversation here in the podcast, this like identity thing that had me so connected 
to my title and the status that came with it acting as a barrier to actually unlocking the gifts that I have in this world and my want to go pursue something else that, again, made sense to me, but not other people. Uh, I mean, I get into coping mechanisms, right? A drink will make this better is a lie in the book. And I can say that as much as I had a casual relationship with drinking over time, my use of a drink as a way to smooth out the rough edges after a long day, as I started pushing myself into new spaces that were meant to make me grow, it was so disorienting. The identity stuff and just the challenge of having to try to learn a new way to do things was was triggering some of the imposter syndrome, triggering some of the identity crisis, triggering am I am I, you know, doing things that might be, you know, judged by other people in a way that had me having too many drinks. And what I, in, in that chapter, had to really kind of dive into was that the struggle is the actual thing that creates the growth that you're looking for. And here I was trying to mute the feelings, the struggle, and in muting, and in muting it, yep, I reduced some of the anxiety, I reduced some of my worry of what other people might be thinking, but I also muted all of the benefit from the growth that I, for growth that I was looking for. And so talking about how to identify negative coping mechanisms, replace them with positive coping mechanisms, the power of habits and the importance of actually having an appreciation for your triggers and how to replace the, you know, things that you do that do not serve you with things that actually can help you thrive. Do you talk about um, codependency at all, especially between you and the missus or do you get in, into that? Because I, I'm a massive people pleaser and it's something I've had to, figure out how to overcome and have people be okay with not liking me or whatever and be okay with that. And that was a very difficult thing, especially for my wife. I only want to make everything the best possible. You know, I want her to have the best life. The I want to be, be the best. I want to look the best. But I realize now that it's a bit of a codependency, so I'm working through that. So um, have you dealt with that at all between you and Rachel, or do you get into that in the book? Yeah, no, we get into it in the book, and it's definitely a thing. We are both, as we would describe it, recovering codependence, working every day you know, to uh, be more be less worried about whether the mood of the other person is a thing that we are responsible for helping alter when it goes from you know happy to frustrated or whatever it might be. But uh, more than anything, in this decision for us to work together, we had to embrace uh, a, a pact, as it were, of radical candor. Uh, it's a, there's a fantastic book, great TED Talk by a person named Kim Scott called Radical Candor. But this idea that in real time, because of our interest in pursuing an exceptional relationship, because of the responsibility we have to our 64 employees, because of not wanting to let little things that we may have in our head that aren't even real festering, that we will just in real time come to constructive conflict and bring these things up in real time so that we can get past them and through them. Well, the codependence in each of us would have never previously been interested in voluntarily introducing small things because what if this small thing ends up creating a bigger thing? And what if the bigger thing now all of a sudden sets off a mood, but we just don't have the time. We just don't have the energy that can be wasted by not addressing things in real time when they come up. And what's interesting, the codependent nature of each of us at first bristled at this idea of having to be in a constant, comfortable state of bringing up uncomfortable things. 
but the frequency that we have had to do it over the last two years of working together every day has completely destigmatized the idea of having hard conversations. We just have them four times a day now. So they're not that hard. It doesn't mean that we don't still have emotion, that there isn't still ego involved, that it can't still sometimes be like a little hard to hear, but we're too committed to maintaining uh, an honesty with each other now in a way that is a total departure from, let's not say something that could otherwise hurt their feelings or make them feel bad even though that sometimes would stew, turn into resentment and rot if we hadn't, you know, if we just brought stuff up, it would have totally short, shortcut any of the stuff that would have gotten our way. How did you set, set that up? Because I'm really fascinated by, by this because one, I think I can take it and I think a lot of the other couples listening can take it as well. How did you set that up? Did you go, hey, we're going to make this change. We're going to, as soon as I feel something, I'm going to say it. Did you set the precedent going, I'm not looking to hurt you. I love you. Nothing that I say. It's only because I'm feeling that way. Like, what are some practical things? And at yeah. the end of the talk, do you go, hey, no matter how mad that made me, we still have to kiss. We still have to hug, you know, something like that. Do you have any like practical steps? Because I'm interested. Yeah. I mean, the first thing we did was we defined our relationship core values. So what are the things that are the capital T truths, uh, truths of this relationship? And so we came up with, with five things that every single day, no matter what's happening, no matter what the world introduces, no matter what our four kids introduce, no matter what you know, travel may introduce, these are the things that we have to stay connected and committed to. And inside of that was this idea of just having honest, transparent conversations. So, hey, are we signed on with this? Blood oath? Yep, let's go. This is a thing that is important to us. Then... Because I'd employed this idea of radical candor as a part of the culture I built at Disney, we'd been talking about it inside of our separate businesses for a long time, right? I'm doing it here over at Disney. She's doing it here at what previous to the Hollis company was called Chic Media. And like we're very comfortable having hard and direct conversations with people on our teams, but we weren't employing it with each other. And so when we started working with each other, we had to have this conversation of how do we continue to have the thing that was a part of our personal brand and operating principles inside of our individual workplaces exist now that we're working together. And so we just decided to do it, and we said that we would. And like I say, the first couple times, we stumbled into it. It, it seemed like a better idea in theory than it was in practice, and then we just did it again, and then we just did it again. And in, in, and in the meantime... We have kept our standing Thursday night date, date night. It is sacrosanct. It is there every Thursday now till the end of time. Even on the days where we love each other more than we like each other, we are going on a date on Thursday night. Even if we've had a hard conversation, we're still going to go. And hopefully, as we get there, we're going to leave that hard conversation outside of the date. But guess what? There have been date nights where we are finishing a conversation that is difficult, constructive conflict, where, where like... Our intensity in our going back and forth is only being interrupted by a waiter who's asking what we'd like for an appetizer. And it's like, <laughs> yes, Joel, we would love the breadsticks. Thank you. We appreciate it. Let's. <laughs> yeah, those date nights, I've been there with my wife. Those date nights when you go, it even starts like as you're getting out of the bathroom. It's like palpable. You're like, oh, this is going to be rough. But we said we were going to do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Those are, those are interesting. Kind of switching gears, you alluded to it earlier, and I say this all the time, it doesn't make a difference whether you're Dave and Rachel Hollis or whether you're Jeff Bezos or Beyonce. Everybody goes through times of self-doubt and immense self-critical. So 
What are some things in this last two years, not so much in Disney, but these last two years, because I think it's really not to focus on the negative, but I think it's really important for the listeners and for the audience members in these arenas that you guys are selling out to understand that you have self-doubt sometimes too. So what are some self-doubts that maybe you've had with yourself before you walk out on stage or as you're getting ready for an event or a talk or something like that? What are some things that uh, maybe aren't the nicest? And then how do you overcome those thoughts? Yeah. I, well, guess what? I mean, the, the first thing to appreciate is the universal nature of struggle, the universal nature of doubt, the universal nature of the worry of having the tools to fully do the job that you've been tasked with doing or that you feel called into doing. Uh, if you feel these things, you're not alone. And so the first thing for me is always trying to connect with that reality that I am not alone in having these feelings. Uh, but the thing that has been most effective, bizarrely for me, has actually been writing about it, talking about it, sitting in therapy, you know, working through it. Uh, I, I've, I've done this thing recently where I'm just open, it, like without prompts, writing in a journal, the things that are sitting inside of my head, and in just transferring my conscious and even sometimes if you do it for long enough unconscious thoughts onto a piece of paper when you can then see them on a piece of paper they become unbelievable in a way that they're still believable as thoughts when you haven't actually gotten them out of your conscious and into like the, like a written form but writing the book i mean i wrote this book that is as transparent as I think I can possibly be about the struggle of this transition, about the challenge of working with my wife, about the, like, one of the chapters is really all about this idea that the things that got me here won't get me there. As in, I had this amazing career. I learned all these things. The last job I had, I was leading, you know, teams in 72 countries, a, a thousand great leaders kind of thing to come into this startup environment and I, with that experience and resume, still had my own doubts about the transferability of the experiences that I had in that corporate environment with a startup skunk works kind of operation. And it was okay to actually have those feelings because there were a whole bunch of things that didn't actually perfectly translate. I was having to roll my sleeves up and get involved in details and be in the business, not on the business, in a way that my previous 15 years didn't really have me in the, the weeds of the business. I had subject matter experts that were absolutely capable and, and in a lot of ways, most of the times, more equipped to handle the specifics of the job than I was. I was there to help keep the stakeholders that would get in their way out of their way and give them some strategic direction on how to do the job they knew how to do better than me well. Um, and so... Every day here, you know, this 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 work is is much more startup oriented. I I will say like we're more trailblazing than we are trail managing things. And so in a world where it isn't about a regular routine, regular maybe is the wrong word, but like a, a conventional business where people have kind of been there, done that. There's a, a playbook of sorts that exists for how you do certain things. Most of the things we've done in the last two years we hadn't, Rachel and I, done them before, creating these live events or doing coaching online or uh, doing the product lines that we've created. And in figuring out as we, as we went, man, there's exhilaration in that. There's fun in that. There's growth and learning in that. But there's also, every time you're taking a step into a space that you don't know, the worry that you may not be equipped to actually handle it. And 
you know what? The only way you get over it is continuing to get back up and take one more step on the days you don't feel like it, on the days after you've made a mistake. We've made plenty of mistakes. And, and the thing is, in real time, when we're having a shipping snafu, we've negotiated something that we wish we could get out of, we do, like, there's plenty of examples. The thing I can say now with 100% certainty is each of those were helping build the company that we want five years from now because of the rich learning that came out of having done it wrong. Yeah, I love what you said there because I, have, I used to think that it was so simplistic that it couldn't be true. And but if you think about it, almost all the good things are easy to do. They're just hard to do them. It's easy to go to the gym and eat right. You'll feel better, but it's hard to do. And you said there to talk to a therapist or get it out. It sounds easy to do, but it's so vital because you don't let those thoughts have this power because so many of us, myself included, you included, everybody listening, we have our thoughts in this automaticity uh, state, just constantly reviewing, reviewing, and we ruminate and perseverate around all these thoughts. And we just think about it, think about it, think about it over and over and over, profound, profound, profound. And we never let it out. But as soon as you write it down, talk to a therapist, you release some of that power, release some of that angst. And then yeah. you can look at it. Like you said, you can look at it and, you know, I've written down, oh, I'm stupid. Well, that's, that's stupid to think that. I mean, I know two plus yeah. two, I'm not stupid. I'm, I could drive a car. I can walk. I'm, I'm not stupid. Yeah. So getting those things out are so so crucial. So I'm so happy that you said that because it's such a practical way and such an easy way. You can just write yourself an email and then delete it and you got it out and lessen that power. So it's really, really crucial. Yeah. What's it? What, what I will say too is there tends to be a lot of shame around the feelings of not having gotten it right, right away. And there's a lot of like ego, insecurity, embarrassment type of stuff that's wrapped in this want for immediately being able to do something well. And again, you have to come back to this. If you already can do something really, really well, then you aren't taking on a broad enough scope of responsibility. You aren't pushing yourself into a place where you're actually going to grow. You, you got to start with that appreciation of growth being the key thing that you need. But then also, the more that you become comfortable acknowledging and honoring the challenge of your experience with other people, you will be free from it. And, and, I, and, and trust me, I know as I say that, you're like, go fly a kite. Okay. But I am telling you as a person that has, <laughs> I, I have spoken more about how I feel and the way I struggle in the last two years than most people, and, and I would argue maybe most men. And not only has it been unbelievably liberating and freeing, it has afforded me a connection because of the universal nature of my struggle with every person that I'm talking to that actually lets me connect, actually lets me have some kind of impact. And maybe because of having connected with someone who also experiences it, has afforded me now insight into a set of tools that they may have used to overcome the same things that I'm struggling with that I would not have been the recipient of if not for the fact of being okay telling someone that I was not okay. That's so huge. Well, Dave, I know we're getting close on, on time. You got a book tour and some other things. So tell everybody where they can find you and what you got going on because you got a lot of cool stuff in the uh, fire. Right on. Well, if you want to follow us on, uh, follow me on social, follow us on social. I'm Mr. Dave Hollis on Instagram and Dave Hollis on Facebook. The is where all the company stuff lives. 
I am going to do a book tour for this book. I'm super proud of it. It's called, like you said, Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. It comes out March 10th. There's a tour that's happening just after the book comes out. Uh, and I'm doing another thing that I, I'm, I'm super proud of this year that I just want to throw out. I've been doing career coaching and life coaching on a digital education platform that we have there on the Hollis Company. It is me talking through on the life side just the things that we all universally struggle with. Fear, fear uh, you know, as a for example, is the, the topic we just covered this last month. Identity is the topic that we're going to jump into this next month. On the career side, talking about your personal brand. What do you stand for in the first month? Talking about emotional intelligence. And the, 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 the thing I'm hoping for is if there is someone who is listening who doesn't currently have someone to mentor, guide them, pull them along their journey in life or inside of their career, and you have any interest in putting your toe in the water in something that I will be honest, myself, I would have been skeptical of years ago to even reach for, uh, this, act, this is a resource. If you try it and don't like it, there's absolutely no risk, but uh, find yourself a coach. Find yourself someone, if it's not me, anybody who can come alongside you, normalize some of the things that are getting in your way, and equip you with the tools to excel at the rest of your life. Nice. And I think your book tour, I'm in Orange County here in Newport Beach, but I think your book tour, you'll be in LA in April, if I, if I remember correctly. If not, I'll put all, all your contact information in the show notes so they can get you and come say hi and say what's up. Right on. OC represent. I grew up down in San Clemente. I love the OC. Nice. I have two last closing questions. You have four um, human children, right? Yes, I do. And you have one really impressive machine child, do you not? I do have an impressive machine child. The uh, Incredible Hulk, the 1969 Ford Bronco. Yes. Does that have a three on the tree? or That is, uh, it's not, well, th there is not a single piece of equipment on this 1969 Ford Bronco that was made in 1969. It is like it was I I I bought the I bought the frame and then the entire thing was just basically redone. It has a 302 Mustang engine and a 6-speed uh, transmission. It's ridiculous. Yes. I promise I, that when I meet uh, Rachel, I won't tell her how much your face and body just lit up when you talked about the uh, <laughs> car versus talking about her. So I promise I won't say say that. Um Trust. then just the last question, how do you build your self-worth? How do I build my self-worth? Well, I am just now beginning the establishing of the legacy of my lifetime at 45 years old. And I'm going to do it every single day by doing the very best that I can to be the light in a world that is dark, to be someone who can afford other people in our creating some tools, the chance if they use them, uh, the opportunity to get out of their own way, the opportunity to really reach for the more that they are worth. Uh, I'd like to have my worth reflected in the impact of the actions of my life and the way that my wife and I, in this pursuit of growing this company, can um, share the resources and tools that people need to, to go out and live their very, very best life. I, I started my journey of getting unstuck by painting a picture of my 60th birthday party dinner. So at around 40, in the midst of you know having the greatest job and the things that everyone from the outside would have said were perfect, I was really struggling. And I was out back with my kids and my 
middle son at seven years old asks what I am most afraid of. And the thing I was most afraid of, he's looking for spiders. He's looking for scorpions. But I, out of my mouth drops, uh, not living up to my potential. And in that having come out of my mouth, it forced me to think a little bit about what it might mean to live up to my potential and to not live up to my potential. And this image of my 60th birthday party ends up becoming this, this vision, this thing that I can very, very clearly see because now I've got adult children sitting around the table who have each been asked to raise a glass and toast their father for their seeing in him the accomplishments of the last 20 years of his life. And there's a version of this dinner where they say all of these things that are about the kind of impact I've had, not just on their lives, but the lives of every person that we're creating these tools for. And there's a version of that dinner where they have nothing to say. There's a version of that dinner where one of them, two of them decide to not even show up. And I can stay as connected to the leverage of wanting to hear the good words that they might say as I can stay connected to how terrible it would be to not fully live into the gifts, the potential that I've been afforded by our creator. And so my, this is a long answer to a what's yourself, but, but my, my worth, my, my, my feelings about myself when I am by myself, when I'm falling asleep at night, are going to be connected to the way that I can, now in this next 15 years, create the legacy of my lifetime by showing up as well as I can for other people. That's beautiful. I've said before, I couldn't agree more that, you know, when you take your final nap on this resting place, we're not going to talk about the mansion or the house that you have. We're going to talk about the housing projects you did. We're not going to talk about the steak and the lobster dinners you had. You were going to talk about, you know, how many people did you feed? not going to talk about your Breitling watch or your red bottom shoes or anything. We're going to talk about how many people or people you clothe. We're going to talk about the impact that you have. And David, I can tell you from my perspective, you are making a massive impact. You are a true overcomer, a great person and keep uh, doing what you're doing. And I really appreciate your time. Right on. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks to all the listeners for, for listening today. All right, cool. Thanks, man.